Hello, everyone. Tom Fox back again with Mike DeBernardis, partner at Hughes Hubbard, for another edition of The Corruption Files. Today, we're going to go ding-dong by taking up the Avon FCPA investigation and enforcement action. First of all, welcome back, Mike. Thanks. Looking forward to uh, this conversation. There's a lot of interesting angles here. Looking forward to discussing. So, Mike, um, in researching uh, for this podcast, I, I frankly had forgotten how insane this case was. And I'm going to try to give uh, some of the background facts. And in this case, it turns out the investigation is almost as interesting or as important as the resolution. Uh, but we're going to get to that in a minute. So this all begins with China and Avon in China. In uh, 1998, uh, Avon starts lobbying to become or to be allowed to be a direct uh, sales have direct sales force in China. Uh, I think hopefully everyone listening to this podcast knows Avon's typical model is a door-to-door -door salesman. And since I've been alive, they've been doing that. And I think they still do that. Uh, that was not allowed in China, though. That changed in China in 2006. And uh, for Avon, though, it meant they had to get licenses every place they were going to do business. So at the federal level, at the province level, at the municipal level, the locality level, all of those uh, levels of Chinese government, probably the Chinese Communist Party as well, you had to secure a license from. So Avon uh, created a group uh, of uh, within the company to facilitate that. And let me see if I can remember the name. Number one, the corporate affairs group, and then a subgroup entitled the Direct Selling Special Task Force. Well, these groups were essentially uh, the bribe uh, facilitators, sometimes bribe payers. Uh, they used a variety of uh, bribery strategies. They used gifts. They used meals and entertainment. They used non-business travel. Uh, my particular favorite was a site study, study visit to corporate headquarters in New York, which became a $90,000, 18-day travel experience. Travaganza to Vancouver, Montreal, Ottawa, Toronto, Philadelphia, Seattle, Las Vegas, Los Angeles, and Washington, i.e. everywhere but the corporate headquarters. Um, they also uh, traveled to the gambling mecca of Macau. Hawaii was a favorite of Chinese uh, officials, as well as numerous other vacation uh, uh, venues. Uh, they, uh, being a good Texan, always appreciate cash. Cash was paid out. It was stolen from the company. Uh, because uh, apparently this group had access to a huge petty cash run fund they didn't have to uh, account for. There were payments through third parties, and there was an entire corporate cover-up uh, over this. And this next part is where this, uh, as I wrote back in 2014, it went from bad to seriously bad, because within two years, uh, and Avon got the licenses, and in the first quarter, uh, they had those licenses. They made $67 million. They paid about $8 million for those uh, total amount for those bribes. And that figure is going to be, I think, important as we get towards the end of this discussion. Um, but in 2008, a whistleblower came forward to the Corporate Compliance Committee uh, indicating that there were serious failures of internal controls in China. So an investigation uh, by internal audit uh, was commenced. And that audit found that 
High-value gifts and meals were offered to Chinese government officials. The majority of expenses uh, to gifts, travel, and entertainment um, was paid of a substantial monetary value. I mentioned the third parties. And most importantly, there weren't records to substantiate how these payments were made. So this goes up to the audit committee and the head of internal audit in conjunction with the audit committee says, you got to rewrite the report and we're going to write this out of the report. And that's what happened. It got written out of the report. And this was really the first time and maybe the only time we've seen that happen uh, at this level of companies. I think we've probably talked about other um, similar situations, but at a much lower level, but literally the head of an internal audit uh, was one of the people uh, caught up in this scandal. So we had uh, some incredible um, cover-ups. We had some just incredible actions. Uh, and then we had, uh, it's still not clear how this information got to the federal government in form of the DOJ or SEC, whether it was a whistleblower uh, or some other mechanism, but the government uh, initiated an investigation around 208. So um, I'm going to stop there and maybe get your comments on any or all or really uh, any part that led up, up to the investigation, because we're going to take that separately. You know, I think I think there's a few um, really interesting nuggets in this case, and you can look at it from different angles, as I as I mentioned, as, as we were starting off. Uh, it was fun looking back at it. Um, one of the things that, that stood out to me initially when I when I first reread the, the documents here was how how this really ended up being the uh, the the grandfather case for a couple of other very similar FCPA cases to come down the line. You know, when we started this particular series, this corruption file series, our idea was to talk about sort of some of these, um, whether they're industry sweeps or, or related cases. Um, and it struck me here that, that you know, not only did Avon, uh, you know, pay bribes and, and, and use all these gifts and hospitalities, in relation to getting their direct selling license, but they were really working with China and the regulators to create the regulation around direct selling licenses. And they wanted to be the first company to get one. Um, and those direct selling licenses, this issue of paying bribes to get direct selling licenses, that has ended up being the, the sort of uh, the background on a couple, at least two other FCPA cases that I can think of, uh, New Skin and uh, uh, Herbalife. Uh, so that, that was interesting to me, but really, I think the focus and the most interesting stuff here is in, um, the background and the, the failures and, and different twists and turns that, that this story takes internally at Avon, because this all started, we're talking about, um, early two thousands, late, late 1990s. Uh, with these practices. And then, you know, internal audit identifies this issue pretty early on in, in an audit. I thought one of the interesting things, I think it was in the SEC documents, was that the internal audit department identified this issue of, of paying, um, you know, gifts and hospitalities to government officials. And the documentation was pretty poor. Uh, and they, they initially recommended some FCPA training for the team in Asia Pacific. Uh, and then the SEC document notes that, uh, a few weeks later, they decided it just wasn't in the budget, so they weren't going to do, do it anymore, which is uh, you want to think about all the problems that could have been avoided if they did the you know $10,000 training. Um, but then there's, you know, 
the issues of once it was identified and, and starts getting reported up the chain, as you mentioned, you know, they, they ultimately wrote it out of the final report. But the really interesting thing to me about that was it wasn't just internal audit who made that decision. The report went to the legal department, the general counsel who said, okay, thanks for this. But a decision about whether something is a violation, a potential violation of the FCPA, that's our domain. So you can't put that in your report that we own that. We own that analysis. So take it out. Right. So the, so the legal department and this this sort of in, infighting or territoriality that, that was existed at the time, which is not, you know, surprisingly not not all that uncommon at, at big companies, um, really led to, to some of these problems. And so I think, you know, as you dig through these documents, it's sort of one small decision after another that if any of them any of them were made differently in terms of how the company was was approaching this these behaviors in China and, and, and regulating them, um, that things could have turned out very differently. I guess what, one more sort of interesting fact, I think Tom was, uh, at, at, at a certain point after the internal audit, even though they read, they, they wrote out sort of the final conclusions, they did propose some, some remedial measures for, for the office there to start taking, you know, they were, they were supposed to, uh, be, better document their, um, gifts and hospitality procedures and, um, uh, make sure that they had the names of the, the officials that were attending, the purpose and, and everything else. Uh, and they just didn't do it. The, the China office, uh, Avon's China subsidiary, just didn't implement these remedial measures. Uh, and a later audit identified the fact that they, had to, they just hadn't done any of this remediation. And they still didn't do anything to fix it. There was, they, just, they just let it sit after, after for, I think, for another 18 months before anything was actually done. So... Uh, it was it was really kind of one thing after another that led to this really expensive uh, process for Avon here. So now I'd like to turn to a topic that um, I'm not sure we've really explored, certainly to this extent, in this podcast series, and that is how the company responded. I'm going to leave the internal and the external counsel investigation to the end. But in 2012, apparently the government became so frustrated with Avon that they started issuing grand jury subpoenas for individuals. And uh, typically, if a company's under investigation, there's a modicum of, of cooperation. Um, you, you want to get that credit and you put forward uh, employees or ex-employees either uh, with proffered testimony or even make them available for an interview. But this was really the first time I recall seeing the, the government use the grand jury subpoena strategy to try to get something uh, more cooperation out. Um, and so, um, and I guess I'm going to leave the negotiating in public down the road a little bit, but maybe focus on what does it mean when the DOJ starts issuing criminal subpoenas? And does that sort of, even though you're not in-house and you're obviously external counsel, does that, is that a signal everybody's blood pressure needs to, to go up a notch or maybe even the pucker factor starts to kick in? Probably should be. I mean, I, I think if, if, if you're in-house, um, and, and you're you're interfacing with the with the DOJ and, and the SEC, both both were involved in this this case. Um, you know, cooperation doesn't mean just sort of opening the kimono and saying, you know, take whatever you want. Look at typically sometimes that's some that's the approach that some companies want to take. 
uh, there's absolutely a, 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 an ability in my experience to have a little bit of give and take. Um, but if you get to a point where, where the, the government feels compelled to start issuing criminal uh, subpoenas for information, something hasn't gone the way that, that, that especially certainly something hasn't gone the way the government uh, anticipated. In most cases, I, I can, I can sort of hypothesize about, uh, about different reasons why there, you might need sort of the formal paperwork, but, um, and I, I don't know the facts here enough to know if there was anything else aside from the fact that just they weren't getting the information they needed or they weren't getting it fast enough um, or, or whatever the case may be. It, it's given that background, I think it's a little bit uh, surprising and interesting that they still ended up, I think, with a, with a 20 percent reduction off of the bottom of the sentencing guidelines, at least for the, the DOJ side. Uh, so they did get some cooperation credit. Um, and they, as, as we'll, we'll talk uh, about, I'm sure they, they, they put a lot of time and effort into to, uh, investigating uh, their operations and, and provide some of that information to the to the government. Uh, let's now turn to what I think most people remember this case for, which was the pre-settlement costs. And there was a huge bucket of costs, which Bloomberg in 2014 estimated to be nearly $500 million. Uh, in researching, uh, once again, for this podcast, I discovered that part of that was loss of uh, earnings and loss of sales in China, which may have been anywhere between 85 to 100 million. But there was a, uh, a huge number in pre-settlement investigative costs to the point where the only time I've ever read that publicly the DOJ brought Avon's outside counsel in and asked why legal fees were so high uh, this was two years into the investigation. So I really wanted to, to use that maybe to, to explore uh, if we could figure out maybe why they were so high. And two, how can you as external counsel help to think through managing that? And then conversely, uh, what's the role of a corporation in this process as well? So uh, I'm really going to Turn it over to you and very intrigued to hear your thoughts on this part of the Avon case. Yeah, look, I mean, I think it, it's interesting. You know, when, when you have uh, an incident like this, so so a whistleblower comes forward or whatever it might be, you, you get the knock on the door from the government saying, we, you know, we're, we're investigating these potential FCPA violations. It is a, um, a high stress moment for, for the in-house folks, for the company overall. Um, from from a, a cost perspective in terms of what the resolution is going to look like, from a uh, reputational perspective, and so there is often in, in those situations, uh, depending on the company, there's an appetite to spend money to do it the right way, um, which is which is great, um, right? But at the same time, there is there is frequently in in our experience um, an effort to ensure that. Um, costs are managed and that, that you're not taking, um, steps that are unnecessary or, or outside of the, 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 the proper scope, um, or, or too broad based on the circumstances. And so we have typically, we'll have those conversations very early with clients and you, you can't, you simply can't until you start doing the investigation, sort of, uh, uh put a hard circle around it and say, here's what we're going to look at. We're only going to look at this. 
and it's going to cost X. It's just not, that's just not possible because you never know what you're going to find as, as the time goes on and the scope is going to have to change necessarily. Uh, and the cost may change, but sort of taking that approach, um, and having those conversations early on, I think is, is one of the things that we do frequently and, and regularly and, and in our experience have, have those conversations on an ongoing basis. So it's, you know, an, an update about how the scope is going to change and how that might change the cost estimates. And, um, and so when, when you see the numbers, like we saw here, and I, I you know, I obviously was not involved in this case, so I, I don't know why the co cost got so high. Um, but, but it is surprising that, uh, I would be surprised if there were no, was no pushback internally to, to the costs of the investigation. Um, again, it's a, it's a high leverage situation. It's, it's a, something that you absolutely want to get right. And it sounded like here that the, that the audit committee of the board of directors was sort of supporting the investigation and behind it. And so I think when you have that buy-in from, from very high up, um, the, the folks down the chain are going to do everything they can to make sure it's done correctly. But um, the, the, the control of costs, even in these high leverage situations is, is a, a constant point of discussion. And, and it really should be as you're, as you're trying to figure out what this resolution is going to look like, uh, trying to minimize that cost at the same time, you should be trying to minimize your internal costs too. So it also brings up, a, I thought, a really interesting tangential point, which was the reason given by external counsel uh, as one of the reasons the costs were so high. And that was Avon did business in over 100 countries, and each country had its own ERP system, meaning uh, it wasn't SAP or some other system where they could uh, speak uh, to each other, uh, and they literally had to go pull records from each country. Now, I understand that um, the decision to look at every country uh, may have been warranted, perhaps not. Um, Avon in only was uh, sanctioned for their uh, actions that violated the FCPA in China. But it really brings up for me the point of why corporations need to have those sort of standardized ERP systems. It's not simply a, a business efficiency uh, it is so that they can talk to each other and uh, internal auditors uh, can look at numbers. External auditors can look at numbers. If they have to call in Mike DeBernardis, he can look at numbers. Um, and it, it really points out, I think, a key part of corporate process is to have systems that talk to each other. And if you don't, the cost can literally be astronomical. Yeah, it's a great point. I mean, the, the and I, I don't know that it gets a, a ton of attention I, when when companies are talking about their ERP systems and and how they're uh, connected or, or disconnected. It's often, like you said, from a sort of a business perspective and, and the efficiencies there. But there's there's a huge amount of, of efficiency and monitoring capability that come come in if you have more connected systems, right? So. Uh, where it's possible, it's not always possible to, to, to do that, but, but where it is, um, it can be, be hugely beneficial for, for, for auditors, for compliance, uh, folks to be able to do sort of spot checks on, on things when, when they have easy access from the central location to these, these, uh, you know, numbers and data, as, as, as you were saying, uh, to do these checks. Um, and I think, you know, in terms of, in terms of, uh, looking at every country, um, Again, I wasn't there for, for the facts of this one. Um, that 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 is uh, typically looks like from the outside to be a sort of boiling the ocean approach to, to an investigation. And in some cases, that that approach is warranted. 
I, I do wonder here if the the early failures internally to manage this conduct and sort of the that background led into the decision to sort of almost over take take a bigger step once they started treating this seriously, right? So we 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 recognized that we had all these failures. We had this audit report that wasn't reported. We we really identified this conduct four or five years ago. We're going to take some extra steps here to make sure this isn't happening elsewhere, and we're going to go look at all these other countries. So and now, uh, this is perhaps the last part up to the settlement that I found just, if not inane, perhaps bizarre. And that was Avon made the decision that they would negotiate in public. And they did that uh, with uh, both uh, AK filings and uh, press releases, as I recall. And uh, we know this because the FCPA blog reported it. So it must be true. But... Um, the FCPA blog reported that Avon uh, opened with a settlement offer to the Securities Exchange Commission of $12 million. And Avon later reported that the SEC uh, proposed a penalty that was greater than $12 million, actually significantly greater. Um, I can only recall one other FCPA enforcement action <clears throat> where a company tried to negotiate in public. Um, I think that's just a terrible tactic. Um, one, I don't think you should neg ever negotiate in public. Two, uh, I think you're only going to piss off the people across the table from you. And three, it locks you in, I think, uh, more, it takes away your flexibility as a company. So I wanted to maybe get your thoughts on uh, that issue. Um, I... I I guess it's fact specific, although I can't, as we sit here today, um, uh, um, think of a scenario where I would have ever recommended or, or thought that that was the right approach to, to negotiate. I think you're exactly right. I cannot imagine uh, that the folks on the other side of the table appreciated that um, aspect of it. Um, I think you are... Uh, putting yourself in a position. You're also, you know, our opening offer was $12 million. They ended up settling for 10 times that. I mean, you sort of, you, you, you end up looking foolish in a lot of ways, right? Um, it, it looks like you had no idea what you were doing when you made the initial offer in terms of either you didn't know how bad the conduct was or you, you didn't appreciate how serious it was or, 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 or how serious the, the government was going to think it was. So um, I, that, that's just, I've, I have, I have never felt the, in any negotiations, really, the need or seen a benefit to making it public, um, whether that's that's a negotiation with a, with a regulator or, or a business negotiation or whatever it might be. I think uh, you have a lot more flexibility in your, your approach and your position if things aren't public. And so you, you lose a lot of that once you go public with, with this kind of thing. I don't know what was behind the decision. I don't know if it was driven by counsel or by by someone within the company who was really unhappy with with how the negotiations were progressing and wanted to try to put public pressure maybe. Uh, uh, but um, it, it was a it was an interesting approach. Let's let's say, say it that way. Um, so. Now maybe we can turn to some some of our final thoughts in this, and I just want to pick up on that last point uh, in conjunction with the grand jury subpoenas because I, I saw a lot of schizophrenia here. I saw a 
companies spending hundreds of millions of dollars for investigative costs. Yet in 2012, the DOJ thought they had the need to, to start issuing criminal grand jury subpoenas, which is a, a very bold step and I think puts a lot of pressure on a corporation. And then we had this decision to negotiate in public. Every lawyer I've talked to about this case echoes your position. Uh, and uh, so I, I don't know where that dichotomy came from, but at the end of the day, that schizophrenia, I think, hurt um, Avon quite a bit. And the money uh, we haven't talked about, and we probably won't get into post-settlement resolution, but the resolution was very robust. And I think a lot of money was spent uh, in that. Uh, and now I'd like our listeners to re remember that $8 million. Yeah. Because um, that $8 million in bribes led to a $500 million in pre-settlement cost, a $237 or $235 million um, in settlement cost. And, 135 million. Oh, excuse me, $135 million yeah. in settlement cost. And... I've seen numbers up to 250 million in post settlement resolutions. So that's a massive number for uh, a bribe of or total bribes of 8 million and revenues of 67 million that were reported. Uh, and for me, that's the absolute poster child of an insane uh, bribery payment. Um, next was, I thought there was uh, actually some, some lessons uh, to be learned here. Um, one was uh, Avon apparently had a culture of just make your numbers, just get it done. And certainly you and I both grew up in competitive environments. We understand what that means. We probably both having been partners in law firms, pretty competitive people ourselves. Uh, but uh, you can't make that the sole overriding goal. Uh, the other thing that uh, I think from the compliance lessons can be um, something which is if, if there's a high risk or rather if there's a potential high reward, it generally means there's a high risk. It doesn't mean all risk is potential criminal risk. Uh, you could build a water desalinization plant near the ocean and we have a high risk of, of flooding or a hurricane or a storm. That could be a risk, uh, but the potential reward could be quite high. Um, and I don't think companies really think about, they see high dollar, potential high dollar rewards. That their first thought is not what's the risk and how to look at that risk, assess that risk, and then manage that risks. And then the final thing was, um, talk about putting lipstick on a pig was the Avon Compliance Committee. Um, as, I mean, as you said, uh, after the initial um, information was brought forward, leaving aside the issues of the changing the internal audit report. Uh, they suggested some training until they determined it was too expensive to, to do that. And uh, the Avon Compliance Committee just was skewered appropriately so. Uh, and you really have to have a functioning compliance committee. Were there any uh, really other lessons that you saw uh, from this case that still uh, come forward today? To, to me, this case is the the ultimate in hindsight case because as you we have talked about this a little bit. But as you look through the, the the patterns, the fact patterns, and how they're laid out, 
there, there are so many places where you could look back and say, you know, in hindsight, if we'd done this, this would have turned out entirely differently. And we talked about a few, you know, very early on, and we didn't talk about this, but very early on, uh, when internal audit identified this issue, but even before they wrote this draft report, um, and it got up to, to, to the legal department, they hired outside counsel to, to give them advice on, on, uh, this, this issue and outside counsel came in and, and gave them a little bit of advice. And, um, Avon just decided, you know, we're not that worried about it. We don't need anything else from you. You can, you can go pencils down on this matter. I don't know where they were in terms of how many, you know, how, what the value of the bribes they paid up to that point was, if they had actually really investigated this and taken steps at that point, I, you know, it's, it's very easy to think of the fact that they could have saved hundreds of millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars in, in overall costs, settlement costs, pre-settlement costs, post-settlement costs had early on, they decided, you know, let's actually have counsel do a proper look at this rather than just saying it's probably not a big deal. Um, and that sort of short-sightedness or, or, or maybe desire to stay within a legal and compliance plan budget um, and, and not go outside of it, even though maybe circumstances call for it, really costs this company in the long run. It's, it's, it's just, it's, I can't think of a better example, uh, honestly, of, of why it's important to take this stuff seriously uh, when, when issues pop up um, and react appropriately, appropriately even, even if that means you know, go, going outside of your budget a little bit. Uh, I understand compliance budgets can be tight, um, but when you identify an issue saying we can't really afford the this small training, let's just skip it. Uh, that's, you know, uh, that, that's going to catch up with you in the long run. One thing that uh, struck also struck me about this case uh, that I learned about through uh, researching and talking to people in the Parker drilling case, and we mentioned Dan Chapman, who is a CCO, brought in to help get Parker drilling through that case. And he told me at one point, 20 to 30% of all executives time was spent on the investigation or remediation during the investigation. And he said, when you take away that amount of time from senior executives who are already over oversubscribed uh, with real business issues, it is a huge detriment to the company. Mm -hmm. And Avon stock uh, just went down, down, down through this entire period. Part of it was the very public nature of, of how these figures were reported and then the grand jury subpoenas and the negotiation. But part of it I've often wondered was how much time did people spend worrying and not doing business? And uh, that's a cost we've, we've never really talked about on this series and I've never really seen it quantified, but Dan Chapman thought, found it to be a real cost to Parker drilling. And um, I think that's uh, probably a legacy of this case too. Yeah, I think that's right. It's a really good, good point by Dan. Is, is he a sponsor of the show? He's getting, he's getting a lot of mentions. Uh, <laughs> no, it, it's a really good point. And, and um, you know, I think it, it continues post-resolution too, particularly if there's a monitor. I think one of the, one of the uh, undertold costs of monitorships is the amount of time and effort, internal time and effort it takes to uh, interact, interface with the monitor, make sure they're getting the documents they need, sit down and meet with the monitor. It takes up a ton of time. We, we constantly see compliance folks in particular, but not just them, uh, business business people who, are, who have to supply information being really overwhelmed uh, during the course of a monitorship because they're trying to do their jobs 
but also basically do a second job, which is which is responding to requests from the monitor and uh, providing information and making sure you're you're implementing various recommendations. Uh, and so, I think that cost that that Dan talked about uh, really is is not limited to just the investigation. It's, it's really limited to all sort of post resolution uh, activities until you're back to business as normal. So that could be years. So when we started this series, we we started with what we thought were the most significant or the most uh, expensive or the most interesting cases. At $135 million, uh, I'm not sure this case was ever in the top 10, but it turns out that it has a lot of lessons and the pre-settlement cost and post-resolution cost uh, alone, I think, are worthy of discussion. And hopefully other companies will learn and we'll continue to learn from this case. Any final thoughts, Mike? No, I, I think that's exactly right. There, there is um, a surprising number of lessons to be learned from this case. Uh, and and for folks who uh, are interested, this the the charging documents here are not super long, uh, but they're they're worth a read. So I think there's the lessons jump off the page 